This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Bright Focus Chat. Today's topic is living with AMD, what you need to know. Just a quick note about us. Bright Focus funds research and public education to better treat and someday cure macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's disease. We have a number of free materials that help families that are impacted by these diseases. These include brochures, articles on our website, brightfocus.org, and of course, the Bright Focus chats. Today, we're really fortunate to hear from a well-known ophthalmologist and have a chance to ask questions on a wide range of topics concerning macular degeneration. February is AMD Awareness Month, so this seemed like a, a great opportunity to, to have sort of an open-ended conversation with, with a well-known ophthalmologist. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Gayatri Riley of the Retina Group of Washington, D.C. Dr. Riley, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Or if you can get started, uh, just a sort of brief background about yourself, and um, I know you've, you've been uh, an ophthalmologist for, for a number of years. Um, just what, is there a common recurring question you get asked by your patients? Well, you know, the the main thing is I really enjoy what I do, and as a retina specialist, a big bulk of my patients are patients with macular degeneration, and um, a lot of the times these these patients are um, in my chair, and they're just being told for the first time that they either have dry macular degeneration or wet macular degeneration, and we'll certainly talk more about the, the differences in a little bit, but um, the biggest question, you know, patients tend to have as a recurrent theme is, you know, am I going to go blind? Because they've known whether they're parents or um, somebody else that they're familiar with, um, they've gone blind because of macular degeneration. And, and that's generally the the first and, and the most honest question that I get that in the most frequency. And, you know, to these patients, I think that's the part that I find so exciting now in like 2019 that, you know, I can actually say that we have we have treatments that can, can truly prevent vision loss. And my expectations for most patients is that they will not go blind. And, and that really goes a very long way for reassuring them. And then we can talk about a lot more of the, you know, the logistics and more of the details once their biggest fear really has been, you know, kind of approached and, and discussed. No, that, that's great. I think you're right. You have to, that's, that's an obvious, uh, obvious first, first question for people. So we have a number of questions from our, our, uh, our listeners that were submitted in advance about um, you know, different types of supplements and medicines. So Dr. Ayla, we've had a number of questions uh, submitted about ARIDS. And I was wondering if you could first um, just, just give, give our audience um, a you know, kind of quick overview of what ARIDS is. Sure. Um, ARIDS started off as it stands for the age-related eye disease study, which was completed now uh, 2001, so 18 years ago, which was an NIH clinical trial, um, which looked at different nutritional supplements and high doses of antioxidants to see if they could slow down the disease in patients who had intermediate uh, AMD and those with advanced AMD. And so this initial AREDS uh, formula, which was what, what came from that trial, um, had dosages of um, vitamin A or beta-carotene, vitamin C, E, 
zinc and copper. And um, that is the original um, ARIDS formula of uh, the vitamin that you can get over the counter. And um, that was then sort of re- kind of reinvestigated in 2013 with the ARIDS-2 trial, which wanted to look at um, new antioxidants, lutein and zeaxanthin, which are two primary antioxidants that um, have been kind of investigated to, to be ad- additional help. And it also looked at things that we hear for other um, conditions like cardiovascular health, like omega-3 fatty acids. And the ARIDS-2 formula was was published in 2013, and it made some changes to that original formula. Um, It actually removed the vitamin A and added those two antioxidants, lutein and zeaxanthin, to the formula. And it was done for a couple of reasons. One thing with the original formula, which many patients found very confusing and understandably so, was that when you saw the original formula, it would say this was a um, formula for smokers or a formula for non-smokers. And patients had many questions that arose from that. And it was basically because uh, it was found that a high dose of vitamin A um, actually had a higher risk of lung cancer. So they had a separate formula for patients who were smokers who already have a higher risk of lung cancer. And the nice thing about the ARIDS-2 formula is by being able to eliminate the vitamin A completely from the formula and adding the lutein and zeaxanthin in its place, we no longer had to have these two different formulas. And it just made things a lot more, you know, a lot less confusing for the patients. Great, and I appreciate the the, the point about smoking because we we had a, a, a caller ask that question in advance. I was wondering, so from an ARIDS, is ARIDS one in in use now? Um, in, in, it's getting harder uh, to find, um, yeah. and 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 you know initially, I for most patients, it, it's not that the original formula was inferior or anything like that. It just it really um, is getting harder to find now just because I think a lot of it just has to do with simplicity. And like I said, it became a lot less confusing whether, you know, to have these two different formulas out there. So I think you can still probably find some ARIDS formula vitamins out there, but majority of the formulations from the, the main companies that produce these vitamins have gone over to the ARIDS 2 formula. And now, is this something, is this over the counter? Like if I were at a pharmacy or a supermarket, um, would I find uh, ARIDS-2? It is, and that's, and that's where it gets a little confusing because if if, if you've been in the grocery aisle, there there's so many different vitamins um, that will say for your eye health and, 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 you know, this is healthy for other things for your eye. And many patients think that is the same thing. So these vitamins do not need a prescription. They are available over the counter, um, but the biggest thing you have to look for, and I kind of circle it for my patients, is that it must say this ARIDS-2 formula on it. If it says it has that formula, then you know you're getting, you know, the proper dosages of the vitamins and antioxidants that have been proven. Well, great. And, and you, know, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the, the vitamin supplement aisle. You know, I think for a lot of people, that is an, a very overwhelming and expensive uh, part of the store. Uh, do you, like how how would someone know? Um, you know, if, if there are other supplements that they should be taking, or are there supplements that, that could work against the ARIDS too? I mean, how how does somebody navigate what's can be pretty overwhelming? 
Sure. I mean, I think the best thing to do is review your list of vitamins, over-the-counter medications, your regular medications with your physician. Um, either your physician, your ophthalmologist, they should they should really be your advocate and they should be able to go through everything that you're taking and making sure you are on the, the proper vitamin or you're on the proper formulation and this is going to be helpful for you or this isn't you know, this is not something you need, um, et cetera. But I think having a, a complete list for your for your physician, your ophthalmologist is, is extremely important. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of over-the-counter medicines, if, if someone is taking, you know, pain medicine or cold medicine or, or an allergy uh, type of, are there concerns that, that they should have if they also have um, uh, macular degeneration? Not specific to macular degeneration, but I'm sure we're all familiar with almost all of these medications say that there are ocular side effects. And most typically, um, they're not specific to, to AMD, um, but they tend to ha- can have side effects, whether if you have glaucoma or if you have dry eyes. Most of these over-the-counter medications have, um, uh, have uh, ingredients that can uh, cause uh, something called angle closure glaucoma, which can be a, a very serious eye condition, and so that's why they have these, you know, um, adverse effects li- listed. But over-the-counter medications and AMD, th- you know, thankfully are, are fairly, um, fairly safe together. Yeah, no, that's good. that's good to know. And um, in terms of medicines, I think the the number one question that we get at the Bright Focus chats is about the the injections in the eye. And I was wondering if you could. Um, and tell people a little bit about what they are, and particularly, um, uh, is there any hope for uh, people receiving fewer of these injections in the future, or any any type of alternatives to to the injection? Yeah, um, absolutely. So first, the injections, and you're going to have to take my words for it, but the injections are not as bad as as your imagination of an injection into your eye. So um, I, I tell my patients. You know, we've all had our blood drawn for, you know, our cholesterol and diabetes, and that that needle stick is usually worse than an injection in the eye. So um, that's kind of the first bit of reassurance, and um, that usually goes a long way. And, and afterwards, they, they usually concur that, you know, the, the injection really wasn't too bad. And, and if you're having any side effects from the injections that tend to be related to dry eyes and things, there's a lot of things that we can do to make your side effects much, much better. So um, it is really important to communicate that with your retina specialist um, who's doing these injections. Um, but the other thing about the future of AMD treatment, that, that part's really exciting. We're actually doing a clinical trial here at the Retina Group of Washington, and this is um, a worldwide clinical trial, which is looking at a, a phase three clinical trial, um, looking at a slow release um of the medication so that it's a surgical implant that actually very slowly releases the drug over the course of a year or so, so that you're hopefully not getting um, additional injections during that time. So it's a really exciting study that we're doing right now. And the early, the phase one and phase two uh, components of the trial have left us, you know, fairly excited that there are going to be other options um, in really in the near future. Um, This trial should wrap up in a couple of years. And um, that can provide uh, alternatives to injections. Yeah, well, that's great. It's it's really exciting uh, 
news from the research front. And just while you don't want to stay on um, clinical trials for um, uh, f- for an, for another moment, we have a number of uh, people that, that contact Bright Focus or leave messages on the on the chat. You know, wanting to learn more about clinical trials. I think it's an interesting. Um, it's interesting that, that I think the, the phrase is, is sort of a household phrase. That, you know, everybody hears the expert cl- about clinical trials, but I think a lot of people don't know too much about them or might be, you know, a little little anxious. So what do you suggest people do, um, you know, if they want to learn more about clinical trials? Um, first, you know, ask. usually there's a team of um, research physicians in, in the practice that are running the clinical trials and, the initial discussion about any clinical trial really helps to have family involved um, in this so that everybody sort of kind of hears the same thing and be prepared with a list of questions. So, you you know, I mean, me just creating my own clinical trial is not going to be the same as something that is, you know, um, that has been vetted and has already had the safety and efficacy and all of the possible risks have been, um, you know, kind of figured out prior to, you know, prior to a trial starting. So having a a good list of questions of, you know, what is the treatment? What's my expectations? How often will I be evaluated? What are the chances? Is it possible that I'm not going to get any medication? Is there, you know, a, a placebo arm where I could potentially be losing vision and not getting any treatment at all? Um, you know, what are the possible risks, side effects? You know, how do I know if, you know, the medication is working? Like, what is being done for my safety? So I think preparing a good list of things that really helps keep you organized, but also can can really go through the, the potential risks and side effects of any, you know, investigational medication. Well, that's, you know, those are all great points. And just, you know, what, what prompted you to, um, to want to, uh, uh, you know, help, help lead a trial site for, for a clinical trial? I think it's just being able to offer something that we can't offer right now. I think it's so exciting to be able to um, investigate something that has the potential to be better, you know, and, and it's whether it's a, a better drug or it might last longer or it might be a completely different way to, to treat the eye, you know, than we've been already doing. I find that extremely exciting. And, um, you know, we spend a lot of time going through numerous clinical trials that are, you know, brought to brought to us and to make sure that anything that we offer is going to be, you know, safe and, and good for the patients as well. Great. We have a few questions that have come in about sort of family history and the progression of the disease. So, uh, Dr. Riley, a couple of people have, have asked, um, uh, if you, is there anything that, if you have AMD, is there any way that it could be slowed down or, or reversed at all? Um, so that's where the AREDS vitamins come into play. That that initial clinical trial, and it was um, reaffirmed in the 2013 data, it decreases, if you have intermediate AMD, it decreases your risk of progression to wet AMD by 25%. So um, it might just sound like you're just having vitamins and antioxidants and, you know, what is it actually doing for me? But that's exactly what it was is designed to do, and that is the reason why we recommend it, is that it can decrease your risk um, and slow down the process and decrease your risk of developing wet AMD by 25%.
Mm-hmm. Great. We have a question about the, the term legally blind. When you talk about the, the eyesight that, that someone may lose during AMD, I mean, I guess what is legally blind? You know, what, what exactly does, does that mean? And, and is that something that, that could happen as, as AMD progresses? Or? So, I mean, it's a great question. Um, thankfully, most of the patients that I treat now with um, both dry and wet AMD, they, they would not be considered legally blind. But by definition, um, legally blind implies that your visual acuity when you're you're being tested on the eye chart is 2200 or worse in your better seeing eye. So um, that's the that's the best eye that you have is is actually barely seeing the the big E on the eye chart. Um, there's a lot of reasons why you can be legal legally blind. It also has a, a component of your visual field, which things like glaucoma can um, affect as well. But um, while that is the natural history of AMD, which means that if we do absolutely nothing for wet macular degeneration, that then those eyes do have a high risk of um, heading that way. Thankfully, with the um, advent, and we can talk more about some home monitoring devices and patients being educated and knowing what to look out for and just having treatment for the condition, the number of patients who would be considered legally blind has significantly decreased. Well, that's, that's great. And then uh, several uh, callers have wondered, is AMD uh, genetic? Is it something that could be inherited if there, if there is a family history of, of, um, of low vision disease? Absolutely. So while the genetics for um, AMD are really complex, we've learned so much about that over the past, you know, five, ten years or so. And um, one thing we know for sure is that AMD is is highly genetic. So a lot of times, you know, you may not know why you're, you know, why somebody lost vision, um, but it is important to ask whether you know, they, they were ever told that they have macular degeneration or not. But it is a it is something that is hereditary. Yeah. And um, a few callers um, have asked about the injections, about whether that's for wet AMD or dry AMD. So I was wondering if you could just give a, a brief distinction between wet and dry AMD and, and uh, mention sure. whether the injections are for one or both uh, types, sure. of, types of conditions. So... I like to think of AMD as a continuum. Um, So dry AMD um, has its own stages. It has four different stages. Just starting off, you may have no trouble with your vision, and it's something that's just detected during your normal eye exam. Um, And you can can just have 20-20 vision with no trouble um, with dry macular degeneration. It can advance through stages three to stages four, Stage four dry uh, macular degeneration is a is its own entity where you start to lose tissue in the central vision, and this is when you can lose some vision because um, the the ability to see starts to to decrease. You start to have some blurry vision, um, and that's still all in the spectrum of dry macular degeneration. Now, each patient may not progress through all of those stages. You certainly can just have, you know, one of the earlier stages of dry macular degeneration forever. So it doesn't mean, you know, that if you have stage one or two dry AMD that it will absolutely progress to stage three or stage four. Um, But the implication of dry macular 
degeneration is that it's dry because there are no abnormal blood vessels there. And that's how we differentiate it between dry and wet. Wet implies that there's actually new blood vessels that have come from underneath the retina and are producing fluid or bleeding in the eye. And that's why it's called wet. And it's it is currently just for wet macular degeneration that we have have these injections um, for treatment. That's good to know. And then um, you mentioned uh, some monitoring at home. Um, who, like, what part of that that continuum, that spectrum that you mentioned, would be someone who would need to do some monitor some monitoring at home in between uh, visits to their to their doctor? Sure. So it's it's typically patients with. Uh, dry macular degeneration. So because, like I said, you can be 20-20 having no trouble at all. Um, and the, the there's two main ways that we can monitor things at home. One is with an Amsler grid, which is essentially um, sort of like your old, your kind of grade school graph paper, which is just a series of straight lines that you look at once a day, once a week, um, to try to make sure that everything appears nice and straight and that there's no new areas where the lines have become wavy or no dark areas in, in this graph. Um, the second way is something called a, a 4C home device, which is a home monitoring device that is um, a bit more sophisticated with technology and tries to identify any risk factors that you might be um, having a change from dry to wet. So um, the, I think that for patients who have dry macular degeneration, these um, two, two options are great. In addition to it, the patients who have wet macular degeneration in one eye and they're dry in the other, these are very, very good tools to um, to be following that dry eye while, you know, you're at home. Oh, that's good to know. We often kind of pivoting uh, to cataracts. We often get questions from people, uh, you know, who are concerned about AMD, but also cataracts. Do they, do, let's say, for example, if somebody had cataract surgery, can they still get the injections? Or sort of kind of big picture, what's the connection between cataracts and AMD? Truthfully, the only connection that exists is that they both occur as we get older, okay? Um, so cataracts are when the the natural lens in our eye becomes more opacified. It becomes cloudier, and that just happens with age typically, and um, that's really the link between the two. So cataract surgery does not worsen macular degeneration. It does not change your treatment for macular degeneration. It does not take away your ability to get injections or anything of the sort. So um, it used to be a, a very common, what I call now just a, a myth that cataract surgery could worsen macular degeneration, and that's been long disproven now. So really the only link between the two is that they both tend to occur as we get older. Yeah. That's great. And related to that, uh, another age-related vision disease is glaucoma. Is there a does AMD cause glaucoma? Does glaucoma cause AMD? Or is there any connection uh, between those two age-related vision diseases? No, um, they're both highly genetic, um, completely different genetic uh, lines. But um, AMD and, and glaucoma are, are not truly um, related. Uh, 
you know, kind of one-to-one. But a lot of a lot of patients can have concurrent conditions for for a lot of different reasons, but they're not truly linked. How would someone know if they're getting glaucoma? Glaucoma is a tough one because that's where you have to really know your family history, just like with AMD. Um, having a, a family history certainly puts you at higher risk. And honestly, you don't really have many symptoms until the very late stages of the disease. So getting these annual eye exams with with a dilation and having um, your ophthalmologist or optometrist looking at your eye, it's really their responsibility to be looking for the early early signs of glaucoma. Right. And kind of staying on these uh, age-related diseases, I was wondering, you know, in, in practices like yours where you, you see people of, of some older ages, what happens um, when somebody's at, a di- at varying stages of, of dementia? You know, how does somebody keep their vision health as good as they as it can be when they maybe they're starting to experience some cognitive decline? So one thing that we know has been long long proven now is that your vision is is really key to your cognitive function. So um, you know having poor vision in one eye for any reason, whether it's due to cataracts, whether it's macular degeneration, for any of these conditions, um, treating the condition will will typically make um, some symptoms of the dementia significantly better because we really do rely on our sight um, for a lot of functions. And um, there's, I have had many patients who've had either cataract surgery or started treatment for their macular degeneration. And obviously, it's not going to fix all of the underlying, um, you know, cognitive problems, but it makes um, it makes a big difference in the in the long run. Great. And uh, you mentioned a number of. Uh, times about, you know, things people should ask for at the doctor or mention or, you know, doctor's visits can you know, can sometimes be, be challenging. Maybe you think of a question after you left or maybe you're incredibly articulate on the ride home, but we're kind of fumbling your words during the during the appointment. Do you have any tips, you know, from, from your, uh, your vantage point about what can make a, a doctor's visit go as well as it can? Two things. Um, one, if you're able to, and not you know, not every patient is able to have um, someone come with you to to an exam because it, you do. Everybody has this happen where you kind of just kind of forget everything that you were going to ask, and there's a lot of information being poured into you. And having you know somebody with you can kind of jog your memory of some questions that you might have. But really, um, just having just writing writing it down um and most of my patients nowadays have, have a list of questions that you know they they come in with and usually we'll go through the exam and I'll kind of go through the things that are going on from my point of view and then we we'll take you know 5 or 10 minutes or whatever time it takes to go through their questions and they usually just write it down and that's really the best way because there's so much going on you can easily forget um, young or old, it's it's pretty natural. So I think writing it down and having, if possible, somebody with you um, can sometimes help. Yeah, no, I think that I think that that's great advice for for all of us. And um, we have time for a few more a few more questions. And I was wondering if you talk briefly about um, computers and tablets and smartphones. I mean, a lot of us are. are Spend spend a great deal of time looking at at screens, and you know we <clears throat> you hear things about blue light and, and other um, health risks um, associated with, with electronic devices. Is that you know factor fiction? Is it something we should be concerned about? 
So that's, that's a great question. Um, I think all we are kind of, what we know for sure to say is that, yes, we want to limit our blue light exposure because in clinical trials, and all that they've found was sort of in animal models. So in, in just in vitro studies, this has not been applied to people at all. They found um, excessive blue light exposure can be harmful to the macula. So um, I, it's, it's not something we can truly extrapolate to people. That's not what it was looking at. That's not what the trials will, were studying. And there hasn't been anything looking at its effect in, in people. But I think just using some common sense. So, you know, we have this theoretical risk of having some blue light exposure in excess can be harmful. So I think, you know, we have the ability of having filters on phones um, to limit some of some of that exposure. And in general, our eyes are not meant to be sitting behind a computer or a phone for, you know, 10, 12 hours at a time. And so just having good eye hygiene, which includes taking a break and, um, you know, lubricating the eyes and all that stuff is still just kind of common sense, but important things to be done. That's great. So now kind of related to that, you know, lifestyle and vision health, how, how or why does, does our diet or exercise affect our vision? Because at, at first blush, they don't seem to be connected. So for, for AMD specifically, we, we know that having a healthy um, diet, these vitamins that we were talking about earlier are supplements. Um, they can be found in just having a healthy diet. So green leafy vegetables, spinach and kale and and things are are full of all these vitamins and antioxidants that you can just get without having to take these supplements. Supplements are exactly what they are, supplements. You can take that in addition to if you're lacking in your diet. So I still encourage patients to have a healthy diet, green leafy vegetables. Um, being overweight is a risk factor for more aggressive um, forms of macular degeneration. Smoking is a huge, huge risk factor for more aggressive forms of uh, macular degeneration. So the the same things that, you know, your your primary care physicians are, you know, saying to you are the same things that I tell my patients to. You want to try to be exercising daily. You want to be active. You want to be um, as healthy as you can because all of these things are related. Um, we, we, as we are less healthy and more overweight, we have all of these systemic effects that affect multiple organs, including your eye. Yeah, that's that's great for our listeners to to know that that your overall health is is connected to your vision health. Dr. Riley, just want, you know, kind of really appreciate uh, the, such a wide range of topics that you've covered today. A lot of very good specific things that we can all. Um, implement in our in our daily lives and at our, our next doctor's visit. I was wondering just kind of a concluding question in in, in the time that you've been an ophthalmologist and and um in in uh in your career, do you think we're making progress? Are there on the disease and are there things that we as patients or doctors or scientists can do to keep this progress going or perhaps even even accelerate this progress? We're definitely making improvements and that's the part I find so exciting and doing what we do every day. Um, there, there are new treatments being investigated. There are new clinical trials being created. There are new genetics 
you know, in terms of just understanding the disease much better than we did 10 years ago. Um, you know, you asked me some of these questions 10 years ago, and that's really not that long, long ago. Um, I've had totally different answers because we just didn't know that much. And all of this information is just constantly improving and it's just going to be better care for patients. And, you know, the, the ability to, for me to just kind of, we started off with saying, to a patient that, you know, I think from where you're at right now, we have a good chance of preventing you from going blind. You couldn't say that, you know, 15 years ago. I mean, that, that's not something that you could really look somebody in the eye and say. And, and I have no doubt that there's, you know, five years from now, and certainly by 10 years from now, it's, it's still going to be a completely different conversation because there's so many new treatments that are that are on the horizon that might be better treatments that can last longer, less injections, change how we get the medications, all these different things. And, and there, it takes a lot of support. Um, you know, research is, is expensive and it takes a lot of support to um, create a clinical trial for, you know, for, for patients to be safe in as well. So um, I think, you know, just trying to, to continue to, to support, um, you know, these avenues are, is extremely important. That's good. It's very, very encouraging, and and I think you're exactly right. The greater the public awareness and public education, that 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 will uh, help, you know, help help support the exciting research that that that's also occurring at the same time. For marking your calendar, our next chat will be March 27th. We'll have an opportunity to learn more about therapeutic approaches for dry AMD. So I think that's a nice continuation of of a lot of what we've talked with Dr. Rowley about. And so, Dr. Rowley, on behalf of Bright Focus and, and all the listeners on today's chat, I just want to want to thank you so much for for being so generous with your time and and giving everybody a lot of uh, helpful tips and, and encouragement for the future. Great. No, thank you for having me. I've always enjoyed these talks. Thank you. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.